Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Across the United States, 11 million acres of farmland have been lost from 2001 to 2016. In Tennessee, we lost around 650,000 acres, with an additional 1 million acres of land projected to be converted by 2040. Much of the loss comes from the conversion of land to subdivisions and large lot housing development. Beyond just agriculture, farmlands can provide economic, cultural, and social benefits to our communities. And when stewarded well, farmland can provide environmental benefits too. Farmland loss particularly impacts our small and mid-sized farms and farmers. So these threats to our farmlands can impact us all. In today's River Talk, we are joined by Brooks Lamb, Program Associate and Special Assistant to the President at American Farmland Trust. Brooks shares about the current threats to America's farmland and what that means for us right here in Tennessee. We talk about the impacts on small and mid-sized farmers and how connecting new farmers to land and to sustainable agricultural best practices can be a win-win. So Brooks, thank you so much for joining us on the River Talks podcast today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, but I wanted to start a little bit with a little bit more about you. I know that you grew up on a farm here in Tennessee. Tell me about that and how that shaped what you're doing today. So I grew up on a small family farm uh, in northern Marshall County, uh, just north of Chapel Hill, Tennessee, in the small unincorporated community of Holtz Corner. And my family has actually been on that land since 1892. Um, Now that family ownership hasn't been exactly uh, linear. Um, My parents bought the farm from my great uncle when he passed away in the late 90s. So we know both the joys of multi-generational farm ownership uh, and the burden of paying down a farm debt. (laughs) But uh, but anyway, so that, that, that place in so many different ways and the people who have called it home have really made me who I am. So I left the farm uh, when I was uh, 18 or 19 to go off to school. I went to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. And when I got there, um, I loved my classes and and I loved my friends and my professors. And I loved Memphis. I still love Memphis. Um, But I was terribly, terribly homesick. Um, And I missed the farm. I miss the land. I miss being able to look out the window and see a field or a pasture as opposed to city streets and sidewalks and other buildings. And so it's actually that homesickness that encouraged me to want to be involved um, in environmental issues, to be involved in conservation, to be involved in agriculture, farming. And so, uh, you know, even, even where I am today, I trace a lot of that back to that initial feeling of homesickness and um, love for our family's farm. Um, so that was present then. Um, it's still present now. I try to get back to the farm whenever I can. I was actually just there this last weekend. Um, so in almost every way, um, my family's farm has shaped uh, who I am, what I care about, 
and uh, what my vocational calling really is. Yeah, we all have an origin story, right? And so I love I love the way that yours ties into the work that you're doing now. And you mentioned having the same plot of land and it being kind of connected to your family since the 1800s. But really, you know, we're starting to see a lot of change with farm farmland in the United States and across, you know, across our region. So what exactly is happening to America's farmland? What is sort of the status and what are we seeing? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of really concerning trends, I think, uh, with farmland in the U.S., um, First, and one that really jumps out into my mind in part because uh, we're seeing it so acutely in Middle Tennessee, we're seeing it all throughout the communities I grew up in, um, is farmland loss. Uh, and when I talk about farmland loss, I'm talking about loss from development, things like sprawl, uh, things like industrial and commercial buildings, um, construction, things like low density residential development. So where you may see a hundred acre farm, for example, divided up into 25 acre lots, um, that are no longer um, really viable agricultural uh, units or operations. And so um, AFT has actually done a lot of work in this realm of farmland loss. And we had a report come out in 2020 analyzing farmland loss from 2001 to 2016. Um, and that data showed that we lost about 11 million acres of agricultural land. Uh, that land was either converted or compromised. Um, between 2001 and 2016. Um, in Tennessee, that equated to over 650,000 acres of agricultural land. Um, a lot of that was our best land, that land that's defined as uh, productive and versatile and resilient. Um, and once it is paved over or once houses are planted instead of crops, we don't get that land back. Um, so it's concerning looking in the past, for sure. AFT just released a report a couple weeks ago called Farms Under Threat 2040, uh, Choosing an Abundant Future. And that models three different scenarios for future growth. So instead of looking backward, it actually looks ahead to see how we may be impacted by farmland loss um, over the next two decades. And that report found that if we continue our current development patterns, if we uh, proceed in a business as usual type approach, the U.S. will convert over 18 million acres of farmland by 2040. Tennessee will convert over a million acres of agricultural land, making it um, the third most threatened state in the nation uh, in terms of its farmland. That's really, really concerning. Um, it's in part concerning uh, because the authors of this report uh, explicitly state that these estimates are conservative. Um, it actually could be much more in Tennessee and throughout the nation. Um, and that's the business as usual scenario, right? And so it actually, it, it could get worse, especially if we look at development patterns um, since the pandemic began, where we see more and more people moving out to rural communities on those five acre lots in which they, they don't farm, they just kind of have a large yard and mow that. And they may have a small garden, but they're really not farming that land. Um, they can work remotely. Um, so we're seeing kind of more and more bedroom towns that are popping up uh, throughout Middle Tennessee, throughout West Tennessee, throughout East Tennessee, I mean, throughout the entire state. So that's a really concerning trend. Other things are, are concerning too. We're seeing lots and lots of farmland transitioning. So the average age of the American farmer continues to climb. Oftentimes that farmer may not have a transition or succession plan. So when she or he passes away, there's no proactive thinking about what will happen with the farm. Um, and that land uh, may well, the easiest thing often to do when you inherit an asset like that is, is to sell it. Um, and when it goes on the open market, um, 
a new generation farmer is not going to be able to compete with someone who is planning to develop that land and come in and drop 10 or 20 or 30 or $40,000 an acre. Um, and there's no way a farmer can compete with that. And I, I kind of alluded to this briefly, but land access is a huge, huge issue for farmers across the nation. Um, it's something that my wife and I are actually experiencing acutely right now. We, we are desperately wanting to get on a small farm of our own, uh, look for 50 to 100 acres, start farming and raising local food. And uh, we can't afford it right now. And, and many, many other farmers throughout the U.S. are in that same, same boat. Um, so uh, oftentimes, I think there's this narrative that, you know, younger people just don't want to work as hard as they have to to continue farming. That's why we don't have you know, young people going into agriculture. And maybe maybe that's partly true, but I really think it's more of a systemic and structural issue that young people can't afford to farm. Um, even if they can somehow scrape together the funding for land, they've got to buy equipment. They've got to have all their inputs. Um, it's it's really hard, even for people who inherit a farm. Um, so, so let's say someone does inherit land. Um, they also have to think about their parents and their retirement. So the parents can't just you know move out and, and hand the land over because they may not actually have any funds saved for retirement because they put all of their financial resources into maintaining this land. So it's a really complex problem. It's one that AFT and lots of other organizations are working on, trying hard to address. Uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge. There are reasons and authentic reasons for hope, but, uh, but it is a challenge. Yeah, I think we definitely see that in Middle Tennessee a lot. You know, when you were describing those farmlands turning into kind of that lower density housing, I mean, I can think of many locations in the time that I've lived here that I've driven by and have shifted over to that. And, you know, I think when I see that, my first thought is sort of, oh, you know, it's it's a bummer we lost that land. It was so beautiful. It was really nice to look at. But you know, there are practical implications to losing American farmland. So, you know, why is this loss of farmland so crucial to, you know, feeding ourselves, feeding our growing population? Like, what is the impact of why this is so important? Yeah, well, I think you nailed it there, Catherine. I mean, oftentimes, the first thing we think about is the view shed. And, oh, it's such a shame that pretty farm is gone. But that really, in many ways, is, is the least of, of our worries when it comes to farmland loss. And so farmland conservation, the flip side of farmland loss, really does bring about lots and lots of really important benefits. Those benefits are economic, they're agricultural, they're environmental, they're cultural. It's a, really an important resource that, that we don't tend to value as much as we should. So if you think about uh, environmental benefits, for example, so open, undeveloped land, so farmland, can store and filter lots of water. I mean, we're, we're on a, a River Talks podcast here. It can really help if the land is managed well and, and improving water quality uh, in our, our streams and rivers. Um, it can also help prevent flood damage. So open land is going to soak up more water than land that's paved over or, or developed. Um, so it's actually going to mitigate flood risk, with the, which is both an environmental and an economic benefit. Farmland provides really important wildlife habitat. So if you look at the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency's maps of priority habitat throughout the state, you'll actually see a large percentage of its medium and high priority habitat is on agricultural land. Um, so that's another really important reason. When managed well, farmland can help stem climate change through carbon storage and soils and trees. So, so yes, those are lots of environmental 
benefits there. There's also economic benefits, um, economic benefits for individual farms and farmers if they can continue with a viable and vibrant operation. Um, but economic benefits for local communities too. So time and time again, we have seen that farmland is actually a net positive in terms of uh, financial benefit for counties throughout the U.S. American Farmland Trust has actually done over 100 different studies on this topic throughout the U.S., uh, including three in Tennessee. And they all show that compared to residential land, farmland actually offers a return on tax dollar investment. So um, people often think that, you know, if we if we add another subdivision here or if we add 50 new five acre lots throughout this county, boy, the property tax revenue is going to be great. You know, we're going to start bringing in so much more money for our town. And that's not always the case. In fact, it's usually not the case because although you may be generating more property tax revenue, you're also expending way more in order to offer services to all of those new developments. So you're having to build more schools. You're having to build more roads. You're having to build more sewage. You're having to offer more police and fire protection. You've got to build more sidewalks. You've got to add more stoplights. You've got to do all of these different things that come with development that really are hard on, on taxpayers and, and local community coffers. And so um, there's really a financial upside to maintaining farmland too. So I've mentioned economic, I've mentioned environmental benefits. There's the agricultural benefits too. So we've seen that a lot of the farmland that we're losing, and this is certainly the case in Middle Tennessee, are the farms that are closer to cities and towns. Um, oftentimes those tend to be your small and mid-sized farms, those farms that are you know 50 to 500 acres. Um, and those are generally more often the farms that are growing food for local food systems and regional food systems. Those are the folks you see at farmers markets um, selling local products in grocery stores. And so as we continue to lose more and more of those types of operations, the very foundation of our local food systems and our food production is, is really shattered and shaken. Um, so that is a, a huge concern as well. Um, and then also, you know, farmland is, is in many ways uh, the foundation of rural communities in terms of cultural elements too. And so um, when you have that open space, when you have an agricultural region, it's, it can be important to, to hang on to that. Um, and so um, it's not to say that we can't grow in our rural communities throughout Tennessee. We, we can, and, and we probably should in order to maintain vibrant communities, but we really need to grow in thoughtful ways in order to, to you know, preserve the, the land uh, that, that really sustains us. The way you lay out those benefits, you know, it's so clear to see how this farmland loss issue can perpetuate a lot of other issues as well, from environmental to economic. And, you know, I think a lot of times uh, agricultural land is seen as such a negative on the environment. People only think about the ways that it's impacting streams and rivers or the environment, but not looking at the ways that, like you said, there are a lot of you know, resilience benefits to having this, this open land. And then really thinking about, well, how do we develop smartly, right? How do we develop and support our rural communities? How do we also, you know, avoid sprawl out of our urban communities into our rural communities and, and taking up that farmland? Yeah. And, and one thing there, Catherine, I mean, I, I will be the first to admit that some farmland can be really environmentally degraded. I mean, it, it can cause real harm when you're when you're putting in too much inputs, when you're applying too much fertilizer, when you're putting on too many pesticides, when you've got soils eroding into rivers and streams. I mean, that that can be really bad. So what what I don't want listeners to think is that 
oh, he's, you know, Brooks is saying any farmland that we have is good. And, and we do need to conserve land. But in addition to protecting land, we need to also think about the way land is cared for and stewarded. And so, yes, we need to be conserving farmland and protecting it from development, but we also need to be doing the good and sometimes hard work of encouraging better stewardship practices. Um, so just one point of nuance I wanted to throw out there briefly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and, and I definitely want to dive into that more because you're right, being able to implement the, the right practices on the farm. So where you're going to start to see those impacts. And, and you talked a little bit about this idea of, of new farmers who are trying to get into farming. And one of the big issues and barriers they face is just simply accessing land. And because like you said, it's those small and mid-sized farms that might be a little bit more, um, or that small and mid-sized land that might be a little bit more affordable for a newer farmer is getting snatched up faster. So how are these issues sort of impacting our small and mid-sized farms? And, and how does that tie into the ability to bring in new farmers into our agricultural system? Yeah, well, a, a great question. And this is really a, a passion of mine is supporting small and mid-sized farmers. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, my, the first question you asked, uh, was around you know the kind of farm I grew up on, and so I grew up on a 75-acre cattle and former tobacco farm. We always raised two or three or four acres of tobacco, uh, as did many farms throughout Middle Tennessee and other parts of the South, uh, and that would help make our farm payment every year. Right? Um, we'd raise cattle, we'd raise our own hay, we have a big garden, sell in the farmers market in town, and those kinds of farms uh, are having a really, really hard time right now. Um, it's not only the development pressure that we talked about earlier, people, uh, you know, making unsolicited offers, calling uh, people's phones, uh, you know, at any time of the day and say, hey, I want to buy your farm, people knocking on doors. Um, and then also, you know, as, as more and more farms around people um, get developed, it's, it's even harder for those who remain to continue farming. AFT actually has some data, uh, and I can't remember the exact figure now, but when land near a farm is developed or converted, it makes it something like eight or 10 or 15 times more likely that that land will be converted in the next decade or so. So there's the development pressure aspect. There's also just the fact that our agricultural system in the U.S., especially over the last few decades, has trended more and more toward marginalizing those small and mid-sized farmers. Um, things like subsidies, things like even conservation programs are most often set up to benefit our larger farmers. Um, and as a result, we've seen a really substantial decline in small and mid-sized farms throughout the U.S. That obviously affects those who have been and are still trying to farm on a small and mid-sized scale, many of whom, in fact, the vast majority of whom are also working off-farm jobs in order to sustain and support their families and their operations. Um, so it affects those who already are in production, but also those who are trying to get into farming, as you were asking about. Um, when you are looking at the beginning of an agricultural operation and you already know that the odds are stacked against you and they're stacked heavily against you, it's really hard to, to be able to, to start off with um, real and authentic hope for for success. Um, and so when you know that you're not going to be able to purchase inputs at the same price as the thousand acre farmer down the road, or, you know, you're not going to be able to, to have the same success in applying for conservation programs or get the same sort of economic benefit from, from those sorts of programs as another, you know, 
10,000 acre farmer uh, in a different community. It's, it's really hard. And I'm not trying to villainize those larger farmers by any means. And in so many ways, we're all a product of the system that we have in place. And, and folks are just doing everything they can to, you know, succeed for themselves and their families. But those small and mid-sized farmers are uh, facing an uphill battle right now. And I, there are things that we can do uh, to help support them better. You know, levers were pulled and unpulled in this agricultural system through policy and other measures to, to get to where we are now. They can be pulled and unpulled again. There are things that we can do. This is not a fate to which we're resigned. Um, but the truth is that it, it, it is really hard for a lot of small and mid-sized farmers right now, whether they are established or they're brand new. And I kind of want to go back to what we were talking about in terms of the impact of agricultural land on the environment, because there's a lot of kind of opportunity in this idea of these um, new farmers who are wanting to farm, get on land, protect that land, and also get them to do these sustainable practices from the start, right? We know trying to go back and to convince anybody to do something differently than they've been doing it for you know, a really long time is hard to do. You can take a lot of different examples, not just agriculture and, and apply that. Um, so, so how can we sort of think about, you know, engaging new farmers, getting them land, helping to protect that land, and also, you know, get those sustainable agricultural practices in on the front end? Is there any kind of um, work and opportunity that you see in that area? Yeah, no, and I think you're, you're spot on. So American Farmland Trust has done some, some research and analyzed some data showing that just looking at pure statistics that younger farmers, uh, the new generation of farmers are often more willing to embrace conservation practices, things like rotational grazing or cover cropping or reduced tillage or, you know, crop diversification, reduced inputs, all of these uh, sorts of things um, than are um, older generation farmers. That's not to say that those older generation farmers aren't also embracing their own stewardship practices, but that's just sort of the, the information that we're seeing. So I think it's really important that we give those young farmers the chance to um, adopt those practices, right? Until they have land on which to farm, they can't farm well because they, they can't farm at all. Um, so we need to support them in doing that. I think it's also great if we could set up, and this is something we're doing in some, some places, set up mentorship networks between older farmers and younger farmers, because there's a lot of localized place-based knowledge that resides in the hearts and minds of farmers throughout rural communities in the U.S. And oftentimes, uh, they're not able to pass that down through conversations, through stories, through walks on farms. And so if we can set that up and help um, people not only access land, but access mentors in order to not just start a farm, but actually succeed in sustaining a farm, I think that is, is really important. And AFT is also uh, considering we are uh, trying to figure out how to help um, promote land access uh, and land security, uh, not just getting on the land, but being able to stay there um, through some farm bill policy uh, efforts as well. So lots of different things that, that can be done there. Um, but yes, uh, it's important to help young people, uh, new farmers get on land, but it's not enough to just help them get there. Um, we've got to do what we can to, to help them stay viable for the next five years, the next 20 years, and then uh, well into the future. On another episode of River Talks, we talked a lot about kind of this idea of going on the offense with regenerative agriculture and sort of being, you know, really pushing that forward. And also, you know, thinking about the fact that, you know, these larger farms that might have, you know, 10,000 acres, 
you know, they might be able to try out some of these practices and take a hit a year or two as things are getting developed when you have a large amount of land. But when you've got a small acreage, you know, trying something new and if it's not working, like you said, that that economic impact. So really trying to also always think back to how can we make these things economically viable for the, these farmers to implement with the support and the programs and things like that. So I think there's, you know, a lot with those small and mid-sized farmers, like you've talked about. Yeah. Well, and, and one thing just quickly there, Catherine, too, you know, I was just on a, a call, American Farmland Trust has a, a webinar going on today talking about our farm bill policy platform. Uh, and so I was listening to that before you and I joined today. Um, and a farmer out of Washington state was speaking and she mentioned that uh, her and her family made the transition from you know, conventional agriculture to more regenerative farming back in 2019, I think. Um, and so right before the pandemic hit, um, lots of lots of struggles there. And then they also experienced uh, several really severe weather events. Uh, I think some pretty severe drought. I think some pretty uh, heavy rainfall all in uh, short periods. Um, and she mentioned that it really hurt their yields uh, on some of their, their core crops. I think this is a five or 600 acre farm in Washington state. One of the things that she said helped them persevere and persist throughout that time of difficulty was that transition to more regenerative farming because while their yields may have been lower because of all these disasters that hit, they had spent way less on inputs, uh, things like fertilizers and um, you know, frequent pesticide applications and, and all of these other um, elements because they were transitioning to this more regenerative approach. And so while they were making less money, um, it's a bad thing, uh, in part because of the, the climate-induced uh, weather events, um, they were also spending way less. So they were able to get through those rough patches um, better, perhaps, than, than maybe someone who was having to also spend a lot and then, you know, also not make very much in the same time span. So it's really interesting to see how that can play out, not only for environmental benefits of regenerative farming, but also those economic benefits too. Yeah. And that really plays into your idea of mentorship, right? Like being somebody being able to tell that story to somebody who's, oh, I don't know, you know, I, I'm going to get lower yields, uh, you know, I'm going to have this risk, but talking about how that benefited. And, you know, even if you look at the cost of fertilizer, it's gone up so much over the past couple of years. I don't know if it's stabilized a little bit more now, but I'm sure in that situation, when the inputs they were already planning to, you know, not have to use as much fertilizer, that really ended up helping when the cost of fertilizer ended up skyrocketing. So seeing those benefits and sort of the unintended consequences of maybe implementing some of these things as we ride out, you know, a climate instability and economic instability as well. I wanted to switch gears a little bit. You know, we've been talking a lot about farmland access, farmland loss, um, you know, especially with the generational divide, but we also know there's a big racial divide in who owns and who has access to farmland in the United States. So how is that impacting the future of farming? Yeah, the racial injustice in agriculture is a, and has been uh, a pressing issue um, for a very long time. I think it's starting to be seen more and more um, as an issue and, and one that is getting more and more attention as it should. Especially if you look at the history of black farmers in the United States, there has been oppression and injustice um, really since you know, 1619, uh, when some of the first uh, enslaved Africans were brought to the US uh, for agricultural reasons. And so we've seen that persist obviously all through slavery. We saw that persist through reconstruction. We see it in the Jim Crow era. We see it all through the 60s and 70s, and we see it even to today. If you look at, at some of the data, there are roughly 
I think 900 million acres of agricultural land throughout the U.S. I think black farmers own and operate about 5 million of that. And so it is a fraction of a fraction of the total amount of land uh, on which black farmers in particular are, are able to, to own and operate. And we've seen that number shrink drastically over the last century for many reasons. Um, part of that is a history of systemic loan denials uh, to people of color uh, on behalf of the Farm Services Agency, on behalf of USDA. Um, we've seen people who are very qualified apply for loans and they're either denied or the process is stretched out and delayed so long that they don't actually get the funds they need to sustain their operations and they go out of business and they go bankrupt. Um, we've seen that. We've seen extreme underrepresentation on local agricultural committees that make a lot of decisions in terms of conservation dollar allocation, um, how the resources, how they're assigned. Um, there's some great, great research on that, that that really lays that out in really, really stark and upsetting terms. Um, we've seen uh, another issue that that's really uh, one that I care a lot about and have worked on a bit is something called heirs property. Um, this is something that can affect people of, of any race, um, but it has especially affected uh, rural black people uh, throughout the U.S. South. So heirs property um, at its core is an informal uh, type of ownership in which land is uh, passed down from someone who, who dies without a legally valid will to all of that person's heirs. And so um, if that land uh, or that estate is not immediately settled, that land becomes what is known as heirs property um, or a tenancy in common ownership arrangement. And so uh, let's say there are four heirs there of that one first person. Um, let's say they don't get the estate reconciled. Um, they all have several kids. The land passes down to them. You can eventually and, and pretty quickly end up with dozens or scores of equal co-owners of a piece of property. And, and co-owning land with family is not necessarily a, a bad thing. Apparently, it's inadequacies in the law that make it a big problem. And so under a typical tenancy in common or heirs property law, any uh, co-tenant can petition to have a property sold at any given time. Um, and so the way that that would usually happen, someone would say, I, I would like to sell this place. Um, they would petition a court to do that. The court would send it up for sale at the public auction and the land would yield pennies on the dollar for what it would sell for on the free market. So uh, what we've seen in, in many cases is uh, heirs who have never seen a property, uh, maybe live in you know, several states over, may want to sell. Uh, we've also seen really exploitive uh, actions where a developer or a wealthy landowner approaches one of those co-owners and says, hey, you know, I know you don't really do much on that farm over there. I'll give you $5,000 for your share. You know, here's five, here's cash. You know, you take it right now. And, and for someone who might be economically distressed, $5,000 cash is really hard to turn down. And so they might do that. They get that ownership share and then they become that equal co-owner they petition the court, then buy the entire property um, on the courthouse steps for, again, pennies on the dollar. They can develop it. They can farm it themselves. They can cut timber on it. Um, it's been a really prevalent problem throughout, especially, as I said, the southern U.S., where the largest majority of um, Black landowners and Black farmers are, are located. Some estimates say that a third of Black-owned property throughout the U.S. Uh, 
the U.S. South is uh, is owned in heirs property format. So really, really concerning. It's led to lots of land loss for people in those communities. Um, Tennessee, thankfully, has followed the lead of several other states throughout the U.S. and passed some uh, reforms to heirs property law. I actually just did so this past legislative session. It's very exciting. Um, they made some adjustments uh, to that uniform law um, that uh, that did uh, lessen some of the protections for heirs property owners, but it's far better than what we had. And, and hopefully there are ways to address those uh, limitations maybe in the next legislative session. So, so those are just a few of the things that have really uh, made it much harder uh, for uh, black farmers and other farmers of color uh, throughout the U.S. and, and throughout Tennessee. Uh, we're talking about Tennessee now to to continue uh, owning their land, to continue caring for it. And we're talking here often about multi-generational connections to a place uh, and to see those severed unwillingly and involuntarily is, is really, really upsetting. And so um, we definitely need to be doing more to support those farmers, to give them an authentic chance at success, because as it stands, uh, that equal opportunity does not exist. Uh, and it's not very equitable. And we've got to write that. Um, one other thing that I'll note that, that really intersects with some of our conversation earlier, the vast majority of black owned farms uh, and, and other people of color uh, who own farms in the U.S. are small and mid-sized farms. Um, so uh, when you work to support small and mid-sized farmers, you're also working to support more diverse farmers. So there are lots of reasons to be engaging on that front. Really interesting to see how these issues that we know are across the U.S., but how they look specifically in the South and specifically in Tennessee. So that that context to see kind of what's happening around here. And it is nice to hear that there's some policy changes that are happening, you know, here in, in Tennessee that that might aid in in addressing some of that down the line. And you've also mentioned the farm bill a couple of times and kind of what that looks like. And I think. You know, when I hear farm bill, I just see this big sort of conglomerate thing in my head and there's there's so much within that. What what other types of policy or legislation is happening um, is, is part of something like the farm bill that is looking to address farmland loss? Yeah, a couple of things that stand out. And again, I was just on a call uh, earlier today, the so these are, are fresh in my mind. One, you know, the Farm Bill authorizes a program called the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. Um, that is federal dollars that are allocated to purchase conservation easements from farmers in order to guarantee that that land is protected in perpetuity. So the development rights are purchased from the farmer. The farmer gets an influx of cash while uh, ensuring uh, that the land will remain open and undeveloped forever. We are advocating that the federal government increase that amount of funding that goes to the ASEP, uh, again, Agricultural Conservation Easement Program, uh, the ASEP program in this next farm bill. We think it needs to be drastically increased. Uh, if you look at the overall amount of money allocated to the program and the amount that actually goes toward buying uh, conservation easements or development rights, there's way more room to be doing to be doing better there if we can just add the funding. Um, in addition to more funding for that program, we, we really think it needs to be streamlined. It is an exceptionally onerous program to apply for. Um, landowners and land trusts that they're working with sometimes have to go through years of forms and applications and resubmitting applications and redoing forms and redoing this and that. It, it is so brutally long and tedious. Um, 
and there are ways to make it more efficient. Um, we obviously need checks and balances. Things need to be done well when you're spending public dollars for something like this. But we've got to find a way to speed up the process because, as I mentioned earlier, we're losing land at an extraordinary rate. And we've got to start taking tangible steps to protect it. So that's just uh, a couple of things in the, the land protection space. Um, one thing that we're also advocating for um, is, is for USDA to create an office of small farms um, so that we can ensure that so many of the great USDA programs, the NRCS programs that are out there, are actually uh, getting distributed uh, to those small and mid-sized farmers, um, that they're actually getting a fair shake at accessing those resources. So that's another thing um, that we're, we're thinking of there. Um, we also think we need a commission on farmland transition, something that we can actually start thinking about this shift from the current generation of farmers to the next generation. Um, there are, are things that we can be doing there. Um, and then uh, increasing you know, conservation funding, creating mechanisms where uh, maybe smaller scale farmers who apply are able to maybe get a, a higher rate than the person who's got 10,000 acres enrolled in a program so they can, you know, account for those economies of, of scale, however one wants to put it. So, so lots of different things um, floating around. But yes, it's, it, it, the farm bill can be really amorphous and massive and hard to wrap your head around. Um, but hopefully there are some chances for opportunity here. A lot of my colleagues think that this is, uh, could be the most important farm bill in a generation. Um, and so I hope we're able to take advantage of that. I hope we're able to live up to the history of what the Farm Bill has been able to do in some places. I hope we're able to make things better uh, and I hope we're able to do it soon. Good to know that you all are working on that because that gives me a lot of hope thinking about the way that we're, we're really addressing and trying to build the systems to address you know, all of these issues. And you know, I know we talked a little bit about sort of the impact of, of the COVID-19 pandemic and that kind of early phase on some of the the farmers sort of economically, but I think there was also a big impact, obviously, on the general public when we had these supply chain issues that we saw with getting food to our shelves and making sure the grocery stores were stocked with things that we needed. Do you feel like during that time, and, and I mean, we know that that's continuing today, is the general public a little bit more aware about sort of the value of these farmlands in their everyday life? Do you see that shifting a little bit to people saying, hey, I, I'm seeing how this is impacting me? You know, I, I hope so. I hope that that people are more aware. I would love to give you a resounding yes. Oh, every you know, people now understand how important agriculture and stewardship and and things are. Um, and I, I worry though that we felt that pinch and that pain acutely, and we started thinking about supporting local farmers and. Um, good stewardship and these things for a few months. And then as time wages on, um, perhaps people got fatigued, perhaps people's focus shifted elsewhere. It's hard not to shift your focus elsewhere when you have family members who are struggling, who are sick, who are dying. Uh, you've got economic challenges. You've got all of the other things going on in the world um, to continue thinking about the importance of farms and farmers. Um, I hope that, that it really showed the value and the importance of, of agriculture and good, good agriculture, not just, you know, kind of corporate farming. Um, I hope people are continuing to, to see and to, to patronize their farmer's markets, for example. Um, that's one thing American Farmland Trust does. We have an annual farmer's market celebration that's going on right now where people can go in and 
learn all about their their local farmers market and vote for it to be the best in the country all all of these sorts of things and that's great and we should be doing those things but i really hope people are thinking about this more often and they're thinking about it more seriously um because farms in in many ways that they, they are the foundation of our food system farmland is the foundation literally the foundation of our farms and and of our rural communities and that land and those people who care for it deserve to be valued. Um, they, they must be valued, um, not only for their sakes, but for all of ours. We are all gonna be eating food, we're all breathing air, we're all drinking water, we're all living uh, on earth, um, and we've got to be supporting the people um, who help produce the food, who help care for our places and our planet. Because if we don't, um, we're gonna be in trouble. Uh, and and that trouble um is going to be really serious yeah certainly i think i could could not have said it better myself so thank you for for ending on that when we're looking towards all this conversation we've had and we're talking about you know a lot of the issues that we have in our agricultural system but i think that there's still a lot of opportunity for hope at this at this moment like you said we have a potential for the farm bill to be the most impactful farm bill that we've had in generations you know what excites you about sort of the future of farming yeah, great question. And and that note of hope, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Actually, my, my oldest brother studies hope uh, as a virtue. Um, and, and it's just a quick point of nuance. I think people often hear hope and they equate it to wishful thinking, right? They say, oh, well, I hope this happens. And they kind of treat it like optimism, right? Just telling yourself everything's going to be okay. And I don't think uh, that's what hope is at all. Hope is an active virtue uh, that we have to work on, right? We can say, um, I hope this gets better. Uh, I hope this change happens. Hope this land is protected. I hope these farmers are supported. But until we actually go out and do the work to do it, we're not practicing authentic hope. And so one of the things um, that does make me genuinely, authentically hopeful is all of the good work that's going on. We've talked a lot this afternoon about the challenges we face, and we need to. We need to reckon with the reality that farming is hard right now, that land is being sacrificed at astonishing rates, that farmers aren't able to get the support and the resources they need in order to survive, much less thrive. Those are all problems. Um, but there are also really good things happening. Um, there are vibrant farmers markets throughout Tennessee, throughout the US. Um, there are people working to protect their land as we speak with great organizations, uh, again, throughout Tennessee, throughout the South throughout the US. Um, we have farmers more and more every day who are wanting to improve their stewardship, who are wanting to be better caretakers of their land, better members of their communities. Um, we have people who are making self-sacrificial decisions for the sake of stewardship. Um, I, uh, I actually have, have a book coming out um, around this time next year uh, Catherine, and it's, it's, it's called Love for the Land, Lessons from Farmers Who Persist in Place. And as I talk with those farmers, um, they tell stories, uh, call back to earlier in our conversation, of being offered twenty and thirty and $40,000 an acre for their farms, money that would make them instant millionaires, right? They could stop working that second or third job their bodies could rest. They wouldn't have to continue wearing out their knees and their backs. Um, and a lot of these farmers I spoke with described immediately turning down this offer. 
saying that the money's not what drives me. I care about this place. I care about farming. I care about my family and my community. And that's powerful. And that gives me a lot of hope that we still have people who are so committed to stewardship and to place that they're willing to make those sacrifices in order to do that. And I think as we go further and further along, uh, whether we're thinking of things like the climate crisis or species extinction or deforestation or pollution or agricultural consolidation, all of these problems that we were talking about earlier, we're going to need people to be willing to make those tough decisions um, to perhaps sacrifice some things for the sake of stewardship. Uh, and I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn. So when I talk to those farmers, when I have conversations with those community members who are really working hard to care for their land, to care for place, uh, and that includes the land and the people and uh, non-human creatures who are there as well, um, that gives me a lot of hope. And uh, I really hope that others can look at those examples that we have and, and find inspiration too, because um, they show us a way forward. Um, and if we're wise, if we're willing to work, um, we'll, we'll take that path forward. That idea of hope as an action and this persistence in place. I think there is so much power to that and a way to take these challenges, like you said, that we, we know are there that have been there for decades, centuries, you know, things that have, been affecting us for a long time and really have that persistence and that hope is, is huge. So Brooks, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a fascinating conversation. There's a lot to dive into here and, and really explore all of these topics more, but I really do appreciate your time and, and sharing with us here on River Talks. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what Cumberland River Compact is doing uh, in local communities throughout your, your service area. Um, and I'm just really grateful for the chance to, to talk with you today. Thank you to Brooks Lamb for joining us on the River Talks podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the resources mentioned in today's podcast, or to learn more about the work of American Farmland Trust, please visit our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org slash blog.